Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Richard Driver, who is here to discuss his book, That Was Me, Paul McCartney's career and the legacy of the Beatles. Richard looks at the change in public view of Paul, how his role in the Beatles has been re-examined and reassessed, how he was represented throughout his highs and lows in the 70s and 80s, and how the concept of memory and nostalgia shape how we see Paul today. Richard Driver, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Hi, Joe. I am doing very well, thank you. It's um, it's exciting, a real pleasure, privilege, almost an honor to be here with you and joining what is, I know, a, a great series of discussions on Beatles books. Um, I've I've listened to I've listened to a fair few, and so um, it's really exciting to join books I've read, folks I've met, and of course listening to you talk with them for, for so long. Oh, brilliant! Well, that's incredible. What a lovely way to start. That's incredibly kind of you to say. So we are here, obviously, to talk about your new book, That Was Me, uh, which focuses on a certain Paul McCartney, which hopefully most listeners will be familiar with. So let's talk about the the kind of the book, the the project itself. Tell us kind of the story of the book. Had you always wanted to write about Paul? I think yes and no. I've been a fan for a good portion of my life, and we'll talk about when that started, I'm sure, when we talk about the anthology project. But I really started to really uh, research and write on the Beatles as a graduate student studying history. And so expanded my my purview in that way to take a bit more of a, a historical viewpoint. And my master's thesis was on the Beatles and some ideas about the Beatles as a as a commodity good, as like a, a packaged item. And it explored them not only in the 60s, but then um, the way that they were marketed, sold um, post-breakup into the 90s and then in the early 21st century. Then I kept going to school, <laughs> working on a, um, a PhD. And that's really where uh, my research blossomed to not only focus on the Beatles, but take a much closer look at Paul McCartney. And so it was there that... I wrote some longer materials to fit into my dissertation about the Beatles. This was the early uh, 2010s when he started touring. He'd been touring pretty constantly since 2002, but a little bit more frequently. And so started really exploring his tours, how frequent they were, what they represented in terms of like a work ethic approach. Mm. And that's really where the pursuit of, of writing on Paul McCartney emerged. As far as a a book, I don't know that that was in my in my wheelhouse necessarily. I've been writing conference papers about Paul McCartney, about aspects of his career. Um, and in 2019, um, I wrote a conference paper on Egypt Station, which again we'll probably talk about a little bit later in in this in this conversation. Went on to be a, a chapter in my book, but it was there that um, an editor from Lexington Books, Courtney Morales approached me and we had a very healthy conversation. She's a, a Paul McCartney fan as well and asked me if I would consider writing a book on Paul McCartney. And so that's where that's where it started. I was also in the middle of moving at that time. So the the actual proce- process of proposing it, really thinking out what research would look like writing took a little bit longer. And then that proposal was accepted, contract signed, I believe just a few weeks before COVID hit. 
in March of 2020. And so immediately went into lockdown. I know a lot of folks and a lot of folks you've talked to, that was a real um, opportunity for them and that they could spend more time researching and writing. I didn't have that luxury. I'm a bit envious because I, I do, I teach community college. I teach every semester. And so we really had to pivot. And so that put a bit of a delay on the writing. So yeah, so it's just, it maybe a long-term genesis. Um, You could have picked any song for a title of your book. That was me is that uh, it's sort of an obvious choice in some ways, having read, having been lucky enough to have, have read the book. What made you go with that as a, as a title? I think it was one that, like you say, seemed obvious. And for me, obviously, it would have seemed obvious. I actually went through a number of different ideas, not only at the proposal stage, but then once I'd finished the draft, thinking about, was it a song title? Did I really want to be a little bit more narrow and pick a, a song lyric? Ultimately, I stayed with That Was Me, but I really thought about picking song lyrics, particularly even from That Was Me. But it just seemed such a perfect fit in thinking about um, ideas such as uh, the length of Paul's career, the nostalgia that he has inherently brought into his career, the nostalgia that fans, audiences that we have for his career in the Beatles. And then it's also just one of those songs that is about his career. And it's him looking back and it, it came off my, one of my favorite of his albums, memory almost full. And it was around the time that was, I think within a year or two of him turning 64. So there's just all these kind of connections, really cool things. Mm. Picking a song from one of his later career albums fits, but it was able to sort of connect in other ways that I just, I really enjoyed thinking about and it helped sort of push me when I wasn't talking about like, the early 21st century or the 2010s to looking back and staying focused on, you know, if it's wings tours, if it's the 1980s, just it, it fit in so many ways. Mm. Well, that's a great choice. So as we say, the, the book itself is, is obviously about, about Paul, but it's impossible to talk about Paul McCartney without talking about that great little band that he was in called the Beatles. I think it's interesting because, one of the, the real strengths of your of your book is is looking at how the perception of Paul kind of as a Beatle and how people remember Paul as a Beatle has changed. Talk a little bit about that. Tell us kind of how how people look at Paul through as a Beatle in for those eight or so years. How that's changed as as time's gone on. I think it it is something that is is has been in revision almost fifty plus years now. I think if you were to look at it. In 1970, 1971, 1972, the view may not have been favorable. And that's just, I think, a, a result of the breakup and how that uh, progressed, the lawsuit to, to um, disentangle all their interest, the poor feelings that existed between Paul and the other three, or really among all four. But I think if you then start to jump forward in time and think about how Paul's career's trajectory went in the 70s. You know, he recaptures in his own way the success, certainly not identical, but the success the Beatles had enjoyed in the 60s with Wings. Hmm. Um, in the in the 80s, there's real sense of confronting the relationships that comes with, of course, the loss of John Lennon, his his murder and death, and then the the albums that follow the songs that follow not simply from Paul but from George and Ringo as well 
I mean, I think that revisioning, if you will, or revisiting almost, hits a peak in the 90s with Anthology. And again, I know this is something we'll talk about a little bit Mm. more, but that I think for subsequent and generations that followed those that first witnessed the Beatles or those that went through the breakup or went through John's death, that was a reintroduction that sought to, to recapture the joy, to recapture the excitement of Beatles. And one of the things that I've always taken notice of, particularly when you're watching the anthologies, right, the documentary, which I know is, I'm sure it's, I don't know if it's out of print. I'm sure it is out of print. Um, my DVD copy, I think, is 20 years old at this point. Of course, they're all interviewed. Paul, I've always felt, looks consistently like enthused to be there. Like he's just enjoying himself. And I think that's part of the process of how the, um, the view of, of Paul and the Beatles starts to change is that re-exposure. And I was also thinking about this really, and this is convenient for us in our conversation in my book, Paul, in the last week or so, um, which I hope I'm not dating this unnecessarily, has announced two new legs of the Got Back Tour, right? He's going to visit Oceana and he's going to visit South America. This, I think, is key representative of how Paul is, is connected to the Beatles. And the Got Back Tour has done a great effort to integrate that Beatles history into it in ways that no previous Paul tour had. Having been to one of the Got Back tours, if you watched it, it if you watched him perform at Glastonbury, obviously the incorporation of John Lennon singing I've Got a Feeling and the duet that's capable because of the Get Back documentary obviously um, is very indicative of that, of that real precisely. And so I think that's, that's a component of it. And I think for the average fan, the average person listening, they're hearing all tell the, some of the very similar, not quite identical stories in interviews quite repeatedly. Uh, so um, Paul's first album, McCartney, unbeknownst to everyone, it, it turned out to be the first album on what was going to be a long solo career. Your book talks a lot about about the early part of, of Paul's solo career. What kind of themes, ideas that Paul puts into McCartney, McCartney One, as it kind of is known now, what kind of themes are in that record that become kind of typically Paul, that he uses again and again and that kind of become part of him? Are, are there a lot of clues in McCartney One as to what kind of solo artist Paul would be? I think in retrospect, we do see a lot of the solo artist, the musician he would become. I think at the time, that might not have been quite evident, particularly in the way that it was received, and then Paul himself reorienting his approach for Ram, because, you know, McCartney, or McCartney 1, is is lo-fi in a lot of descriptions. It's self-recorded, it's done both at home and in the studio, right? There are very um, celebrated studio tracks included. But its reception was was poor at the time, and that reor- that forced him to reorient. And then Ram becomes a very produced, very um, put together record. Right, he goes and explores studio options in New York and in L.A. He brings in studio musicians, some of whom he made great friendships with, Denny Sidewell being most notable there. But I think as far as what McCartney one was able to showcase, and this is true. As we look at his long career, and particularly when you uh, when you juxtapose it with, say, McCartney three fifty years later, it's his emphasis 
in the Q&A that was put out with the review copies, his identification of themes such as home, family, and love, right? which we know was a very deliberate inclusion in the Q&A. But I think those three words, which are stated directly, dominate his life and dominate his career after the Beatles. And that's not to, to suggest that they weren't there with the Beatles. And that's, I think they, they certainly were. But because Linda becomes such a crucial component of his life, of his career, their children are part of that. The homes that they make, it's not any one home, right? You have the farm in Scotland. You have the home that's purchased later in Sussex. Of course, you have Cavendish. And then, of course, we know they'll later purchase homes in Arizona, L.A., etc. But those were all places that they they cherished and that they lived. And that's, I think, just a theme that continues in so many ways. Again, I don't mean to jump too far in our conversation, too far ahead. But I think McCartney 3 showcased this so well. Because it did link back to those themes. It linked back to McCartney 1. And one of the things that I really enjoyed, particularly putting together the chapter that is not the conclusion, but the penultimate chapter, is you have Mary McCartney, his daughter, playing a very important role in that album. And of course, she's on the back cover of McCartney, right? She's tucked into the jacket. It's uh, a photograph taken by her mother, by Linda. And so just these type of themes... And of course, there's conscious um, efforts to link them, particularly with McCartney 3 and being recorded in, in lockdown or rockdown. I think that's, that's prevalent there. And the other, the other idea that's not necessarily connected to those themes is Paul's resilience, his knowledge, his mastery of performing, of instruments, of recording. He was able to sort of lead his own career even though he does bring folks in at times and those those don't always work out the best. Sometimes they work really well, but he was reliant on his family. And then of course on himself and resilient to um, achieve what he wanted to achieve with his career. Hmm. The home family love thing. I've never, I haven't quite worked out yet whether or not that makes more sense to me as I've got older and had a family and, done all that stuff which obviously I didn't have when I was younger or whether or not the kind of the moment has changed a bit kind of culturally where if you look at the kind of pop stars that we have now they aren't as that kind of Harry Styles Taylor Swift type figure that aren't throwing TVs out of hotel room windows doing all that kind of Led Zeppelin stuff I wonder whether or not the fact that Home and family love thing makes more sense now. Fits a bit more with the kind of cultural moment that we're in, or, or do you think that's just something that we personally, as we get older, and if we go down that route ourselves, maybe it obviously makes more sense. Like a song like "Beautiful Boy" might make more sense to someone as a parent than as a, a non-parent. I'm not saying that people that don't have children can't love that song, but I wonder whether or not the moments changed a bit. I, I definitely think you're right. I feel like I'm the same way, particularly. Uh, with Double Fantasy is a great example. Uh, McCartney one is another great example because I, I think as I look back, as it were, and I remember when I first heard that album, I don't know that it had the same effect that it has, say, 20 years later when you've had a family, when you've maybe matured. I don't know if that's fair either, but you know, to have those things and to be familiar with their meaning to us personally definitely, I think, changes what you're what you're hearing. 
Mm. Um, and I think you're 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 absolutely right. Perhaps culturally too, and I think that maybe stability is something that we're we're seeking in our musicians. I think Taylor Swift and um, Harry Styles are are great examples of that because, as you say, they're not they're not living. I mean, I'm sure they are living lavish lifestyles, <laughs> but it's not rough or, or violent there's no tvs being thrown out of of a, of a window and i think as well they both are great examples that do a real good job of trying to connect to their audiences to their fans taylor swift being a very a very useful example because i did take my daughter to see the eras tour but there's a i think an excitement in that mm-hmm. when, a, when a fan or an audience can can relate in in some capacity um I don't think any of us are necessarily, I certainly don't have the opportunity to entertain tens of thousands of audience members in massive stadiums, but there's still a connection there. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're in a, we're definitely in a cultural moment where that is something that we're seeking and it, whether that's the after effects of, of the COVID pandemic or maybe larger divisions mm. occurring because these do allow us to bridge whatever divisions exist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, stability is um, really interesting. I think when you look at, and we're going to go off track a little bit here, but when you look at the through the late eighties, nineties, they call that period the end of history, from like the Berlin Wall to nine eleven, where everything was kind of it felt like the world was kind of kind of calm for a bit. That was when Guns and Roses were like important. Do you know what I mean? When people look for rebellion maybe elsewhere, whereas now when the world's crazy and everything's going mad, yeah. <laughs> we like just to enjoy some kind of simple pop songs. Fascinating point. So uh, going back to going back to Paul, obviously Paul then becomes of the four Beatles as we, as the seventies start to take shape by far commercially, probably critically as well. Paul's the most successful of the four of them. What do you think were the reasons for that? Do you think that the quality of, of his albums outshone the others? I think he was willing to, experiment and we might he might not have identified it as experimentation we might not necessarily look at it as experimentation but when you know his his former bandmates when george is putting out a a triple album of course backlog of everything that hadn't been recorded with the beatles it's produced very nicely although i i'm I'm sure there are folks out there that would say it's overproduced by by phil specter when john is putting out very raw material whether it be on Plastic Ono Band, or he is himself putting out some more thoughtful material, such as on Imagine. Meanwhile, Paul is sort of up and down, if you will, right? You've got lo-fi, you've got high production, you've got quick and very rough production on Wings Wildlife. The comparisons there may not be fair, but he just kept plugging. He just kept going. And so I've always, I've always found that his, his work ethic is consistent. Um, we have a marvelous view of Paul effectively leading Beatles projects, particularly after the, the death of Brian Epstein, that factors in their breakup. I think he continued that, and he continued that in the formation of Wings as a restart, as a true restart. And he's going to start at the bottom, work his way up, um, and that commitment is just so strong. And so, yeah, as you said, I think it's it's very much that an attitude, a personality. Is he he knows he can do it. Right, he has to weather the the poor receptions, but he knows he can do it, and so he pursues that, and it of course leads to massive success in the seventies. The wings over over Europe first in seventy five, Australia, and 
been Wings Over America being sort of, um, I think I refer to it again in my book as the toppermost of the poppermost, right? It's that very same idea of the Beatles invaded, captured America in 64. Paul does it again in 76. And it's just such a, a very nice replication to cap that that success. And I, he's also really the only one out there touring in that regard. I mean, um, they all make appearances. George has, um, an unfortunately, a, a failed tour in 74. John had made appearances at numerous concerts, benefit shows earlier in the 70s. But as far as, uh, say, the, the exposure, the visibility, Paul was out there. And you know, one thing I always, and I don't know that I may have noted this as clearly in my book as I, I, I intended to, but despite critical reception, audience reception was positive. His albums were still selling. They, you know, they may have been poorly received by critics, but audiences were purchasing them, and that grows and leads to the success um, you mentioned as well. Just before we talk about about 1980 and then the aftermath of the events of that year, London Town, Back to the Egg, are still sizable hits, far bigger than the records that George and Ringo put out around that time. We don't have that comparison with John because John wasn't releasing records. But at the same time, if you look at the commercial response to Double Fantasy in those first two weeks, it wasn't big. Certainly London Town and Back to the Egg were, I think, safe to say, probably bigger in the early part of their releases. Do you think that that it's fair to say that he did lose a bit of momentum after that 76 tour that you mentioned? What do you think the reasons for that were? Well... I don't know if he lost momentum. I mean, Linda was pregnant again with with James, so there was there's going to be a necessary and needed break to accommodate that. And I think as well, the everything I read and incorporated into into my research and discussion was that the plan for '77 was duplicate '76 was to to keep the momentum going forward. And he'd had success recording uh, Venus and Mars in New Orleans. They chartered a boat but in the caribbean to sort of experiment again right to record in a very unique environment it was unsafe it was untested there was so much technical that was uh, problematic and then of course with linda being pregnant it just it caused a delay Hmm. and so i think that that had an effect an unintended effect in that the other members of wings um outside of denny lane who you know maybe were not getting paid as as well definitely um, not enjoying some of the profits from say the tour or other aspects were looking for other opportunities and so they pursued them and so i think that had the unintended effect of of slowing down on mm. um, the direction that they had taken now that being said mull of kintyre is november of 77 and a massive hit outpaced she loves you from 13 years earlier itself of course will be outpaced again with do they uh, do they know it's christmas in 84 but he was still pushing he was still going it just life perhaps again back to that theme of home family and love interceded and um they had they had to take a break (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it does happen as we know going on to 1980 and then the aftermath of that your book talks quite a lot about about the effects of of John's murder on Paul and on the kind of the, again, this idea of memory, how that one event 
I mean, obviously, it changed the whole story. The whole thing altered for, on that one night completely for the Beatles themselves and for the Beatles audience and for the audience that weren't even born yet. Everything was was going to change in just the worst way possible. What do you think the impact of, of losing John on Paul from a musical perspective was? What can we see clues in the direction that Tug of War and Pipes of Peace that all were around those records. How much do you think Losing John affected the recording of those two albums? Well, definitely it affected the the process. It it affected maybe the pace that he and George Martin, who he had recorded or recruited to record and produce Tug of War, they attempted to keep working on December 9th and ultimately abandoned those plans and then regrouped a couple months later. I think it, particularly John's murder, his death, on Tug of War, I imagine it reshaped what Tug of War would have been. Mm. Of course, we we can't predict, we can't, I, I can't even possibly envision what Tug of War might have been in some sort of alternate reality. But it, it emerged instead as a, as a vehicle where he addressed, where Paul addressed um, his feelings, he addressed their relationship. And it wasn't direct necessarily, but of course it addressed sort of the competition that they'd had with one another. It addressed the the way that they had portrayed one another, attacked one another, certainly in the early uh, 70s. But it also addressed the very emotional rawness that continued of their of their relationship. Of course, from both their perspectives in different in different ways, it would always be unresolved. Hmm. And so it, it became a vehicle where Paul could address that, where he could re- he could resolve that in his own way, much more effectively. And I always, I think, of course, we, we could certainly cite here today as a far better response than his off-the-cuff comment when a reporter you know, shoved a microphone in his face, and then, of course, he gets saying it's a drag. Mm. <laughs> but I think it, it definitely reshaped what tug-of-war became. And then, of course, with that, follows Pipes of Peace, and then give my regards to Broad Street, which a number of academics, authors have talked about as being very much, and I, I talk about this, um, citing some of their work. I've talked that the film very much is a method to address the loss in, through a different means, through a visual means. And so you have that kind of direction. I think really what we see as well is, I mean, this could be sort of thinking about the success of the of those albums of those projects with a lack of success when you by the time you get to, to broad street is even without and this goes back to what you mentioned a moment ago john is not recording from 75 to mid 80 he's there's no output there's no you, know, you there's nothing in john's catalog there's nothing in his output to compare with say london town or back to the egg there's no competition then by that measure, right there, you know, you're not suggesting that anyone was comparing, say, Mind Games and Band on the Run, or Mind Games and Red Rose Speedway, or Walls and Bridges and Venus and Mars, anything like that. But they knew what the other was doing, right? They knew they're listening to what they're putting out, they're listening to their recordings, and this, in some ways, energizes them. It spurs them to to get back out there. And one of the true tragedies, not only of of Lennon's of his murder and his death is that it was coming up. It was Paul's debut single from McCartney two that had so energized John 
And Double Fantasy, the the songs on that reflect some of that energy, but we don't you know, obviously we don't have a a means to follow that up further. And so it's that's a that sort of impacts, I think, what we begin to track in the eighties particularly. That's really interesting there, that idea of competition between the two of them. You know, there's that recording that I think is one of the ones that Fred Seaman may have liberated from his time working with John. There's that audio diary that John's made in like about 79 and he's talking about as someone that's not on the music scene. He talks about Mick Jagger and Paul Simon and, and Elton and all these people. And he says, I'm I'm not interested in what they're doing and, and all that kind of stuff, which clearly means he's interested in what they're doing, in my view. But it's interesting because you, you never get, got the sense really through the 70s, you know, post 75 and into the early 80s, that Paul would compare himself with a Neil Young, a Paul Simon, Stones, The Who, you know, Townsend, these people. It, it was all about John. You get th- The whole sense with, with Paul was that all he was thinking about was John, whereas John might have been, maybe he, he thought about the kind of the greater competition, i.e. those other 60s and early 70s artists a bit more than Paul did. But I think for Paul, it, it was all about, about John, really, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a, a great, a great point because their relationship is is lost, and of course, then we see how that plays out for Paul, mm. um, where he has to he has to grapple with what that means, and naturally here today being the very precise example of that. Tug of War is a, another useful example thinking about that, but that plays out for him in ways that you know when you think about what interest they may have had in other musicians, what types of competition may have existed. It's not there. (laughs) Yeah. Moving through the 80s, it's not news to anyone listening to this, that, yeah, the the commercial slump, which which sort of starts with with Pipes of Peace, where Pipes of Peace is still, I'd say, a, a fairly big hit record, but certainly Broad Street, certainly Press, and some of the projects after Press that don't take off, you might know that on my Twitter page at Bitters Books, uh, I post these little clips, random clips of, of interviews and stuff. And there was there's one clip I posted where Paul's being interviewed around the time by a journalist called Robert Hilburn in America. And Robert Hilburn says to him, this is around the time of press. And he, he says, he talks to Paul, he says, some of your records, your solo records, they were a, a huge disappointment. There's a lack of quality there. And the, the kind of thing that you would never hear an interviewer say to him now. And really around that point, he is, he's open to the most criticism, 84, 85, 86. Do you think that that commercial and critical slump was inevitable for Paul as the 80s wore on? I don't want to think it was inevitable. I think, as we were just talking, I think he was really, he was working through grief, as mm. everyone in the Beatles family were, as fans were in the 80s. Um, he was having to endure some of the revisionism that was taking place around he and John's relationship. And I think he was working really hard to to stay hip, if you will, to stay fashionable, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, they have very similar style, sound. Broad Street, of course, continues that and then incorporates re-recordings of Beatles songs. But then press is very much a, a different direction in a lot of ways. And I think there was a concerted effort to stay with the trends of the era and that, for whatever reason, didn't work. Um, I think it's a fine album. I've certainly enjoyed it myself. Just, you know, didn't mesh well with the environment of 
either what interviewers <laughs> were expecting, what fans may have been seeking. But I think it, it, it in many ways, it still continues some of those same threads. I also find that when we look at those projects, whether it be press or Return to Pepperland, which remains unreleased, and then on to um, Flowers in the Dirt, I think he was also working to find a a means of collaboration following John's death. And so I think that I, I would say that's why I might not argue it was inevitable that there was a, a commercial um, or critical slump because tug of war and pipes of peace have great collaborators on both of them. George Martin, first and foremost, Ringo is on tug of war where you've got Carl Perkins. And then of course, Stevie wonder, very, very prominent on tug of war. Michael Jackson, very prominent on pipes of peace. And then of course, uh, Denny lane still performing, especially on tug of war. You've got Eric Stewart that comes in. And then of course, by 87, 88, Elvis Costello is working closely with Paul. And I think that's a real effort to find a collaborator, perhaps again, as a means of, of managing the grief of managing the loss, but also of staying culturally popular, fitting in with the styles that were taking off by them. And I think um, Flowers in the Dirt, of course, is a, is, is a success. Fascinating. So yeah, we, we mentioned it earlier, the anthology, which is, I think both of our kind of stepping in, points maybe to, to different aspects of the Beatles it's such a um, such a fascinating project and I, I think about it a lot <laughs> probably far too much that than I should do but you write about it really really beautifully in your book and it is an interesting subject especially for Paul so you you mentioned earlier there that in those interviews that they conduct with the three surviving Beatles in that 92-93 period Paul seems generally to be the most kind of content most of the time he's having a, a great time, it would appear. I spoke to on an episode quite a while ago, now, a couple of years ago, a man called Bob Smeaton, who, who wrote a book about his time working with the Beatles on the anthology. And he did quite a lot of those interviews. And he said that Paul was just everything you needed to say in that hour and a half, two hours, he would hit every point. Whereas you'd have to really reshoot with George and reshoot with Ringo to get the stuff that they actually needed. I suppose, I suppose that the, the question around Paul and the anthology is why do you think it was it was so important for Paul this whole project do you think that's the point maybe where we start to see Paul in a different way I think so absolutely um and I agree with you that we see a an almost kind of a, a reset if you will um and it's on another note thinking about George and Ringo I don't know that I would necessarily say that it looked like they were dreading the conversations <laughs> but as you say um mentioning Bob Smeaton, that they may not have been as prepared necessarily to re-engage with some of the events that occurred. And so I always enjoyed Paul's interviews because, well, I'm a fan, first of all, but then also just, here's that energy. The anthology was my introduction to the Beatles. And we could certainly talk a lot about maybe some of the aspects of it that don't go too deeply into the, the dirt and the grime that we know existed. But it was just so exciting, right, to think that this happened. Like, and I, I was 11, I think, when it, or 12, excuse me, when it aired in 95. And, you know, to be at that point, this is mid 90s. We're in the midst of, even in America, we're in the midst of post Nirvana. Britpop is on our horizon still. 
to be able to experience that sheer excitement and think, wow, this is, this is what my parents got to listen to. And of course, at that age, you know, I wasn't thinking about my parents and the cultural challenges that that may have represented to their parents. I have since, hmm. but I think definitely that then it introduces the Beatles as a band from the sixties. It then also reintroduces the Beatles or the Threedles as they came to be called to new audiences. And in the wake of that, I've, Obviously, we can track releases, promotions, marketing, all that. Paul was out of the gate ready to go with a new album very quickly mm. um, with Flaming Pie. And so, and it, it continues some of the same threads in the new recordings Freeze a Bird, Real Love. They worked on those with uh, Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn is prominent on Flaming Pie. So it, it very much continued and consciously continued that thread of what Anthology had presented. Um, how Paul peers, and then he kind of continues there. Right? That the sort of fresh faced. I remember he gave interviews that I can remember setting alarm for, like on VH1. Now seems really old because this is the mid '90s we're talking about. Now I look back and know his age, but he just he doesn't look it. And that's not to say that he doesn't he doesn't look 81 now. Those were I think connections that he could make, and as a as a young fan, that I think impacted so heavily mm. you mentioned flaming pie there which as you say yeah it, it's it's sort of his anthology album it kind of fits in with that moment really really well and it's a, a huge hit one of the themes of your book is this idea of nostalgia and flaming pie fits in with that that looking back i suppose do you think that this was um his first real kind of nostalgic sounding album this is the first time that he really feels comfortable looking back on himself. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and it, it's not only that he's nostalgic, that he's um, looking back on himself. He was, and again, sticking to the themes that we mentioned earlier, he's, he was working with very close friends, family. He was invigorated to make an album that he believed was in the sort of the mindset, the ethos of the way that the Beatles had recorded and so he brings all that into the studio. The songs themselves predate off the ground for sure. They then there are those songs that are written during the anthology. There are those songs that are recorded in the wake of the anthology. So the the songs themselves come from uh, a few different points in his life, but the style, the appearance, the visual aspects. I think the liner notes were written by Mark Lewisohn. So you get again another direct thread carrying forward. And so I've, I've always found that it just, if you're going to line these things up and you're going to look at these, whether it be for uh, the way they sound, the way they appear, just the environment when they came out, Flaming Pie goes back to the Beatles. And of course, the title is itself nostalgic. And so it, it claims that. It, it brings that into Paul's environment and to the way that he remembered the Beatles for himself. Mm. Well, so I, absolutely, I think it's it's nostalgic, but it's also, I think, still a... A 90s album. I think it's still influenced by some of the musicians around him. Um, maybe not directly, but I think it's it's very keyed into what was taking place outside the Beatles, mm. um, or outside, outside the anthology, excuse me. You know he does the Smoking Mojo Filters track, the Come Together track in 95. It's got that reel with Paul Weller and Noel Gallagher uh, and others 
that's got that's got that real kind of earthy feel to it. I always think that's that ties in with Flaming Pie a little bit, elements of that sound. I think you get some of the criticism certainly of Flowers in the Dirt was that the production or that had obviously did have quite a few producers, still had that hangover from the aces of that quiet process sound. But I think Flaming Pie has got a real heart to it, which um which again ties in with our our reoccurring theme of home, family, and love. I think as well that um, we're seeing, I think we're still seeing that. I mean, thinking about the nostalgia from the anthology, anthology still seems fresh in that regard, right? And whether anyone is necessarily consciously thinking about anthology, I certainly am. As you said, I think I also think about it perhaps too much, (laughs) but it's still there and it's still, it's still playing such a prominent role in the history of the Beatles and certainly the memory of the Beatles, Mm -hmm. which is a big factor of, of what made, anthology so successful and so impactful after flaming pie paul loses again we know the other one of the other great loves of his life linda passes away in in 98 and and then there are releases there's fireman releases there's driving rain the tour starts again in 2002 but i always feel that what i call in in the questions that i sent over to you the the kind of the final road of Paul's career for me starts with 2005's Couch and Creation in the Backyard which is just one of my favourite albums of, of his um, I think it's just a, a fantastic album that's the first time I really I, I kind of felt like he'd done a full 360 from that 80s period he was completely back on top it's a really strong record it does really well he's back out on on the road first of all what elements do you think kind of come together? We've talked about the in the 90s, but 10 years on from Anthology, he starts to to get to where he is now. What do you think were the factors that, that led to that? I always point to uh, his return to touring regularly. That starts in, in 2002, which, of course, also follows the death of George Harrison. We, we, we certainly don't want to omit that. But that I think kicked his output, kicked his productivity into a new gear. Mm. Um, I don't, he he never loses that naturally. I mean, we've talked obviously about slumps, but I think the touring kicked him just into a, a new gear, right? And the theme of the road there works perfectly. <laughs> by that recording, by recording Chaos and Creation, he also had a new band together. Now, obviously, um, the band is not on Chaos and Creation because Nigel Godrick didn't want them to be on the album. He wanted it to be all Paul. But he has a new band, and we know this is a band that they meshed really well together. They are still, as of now, going to continue performing together. How lucky to be able to say that. But that, I think, reinvigorated him. And, of course, on Chaos and Creation, he's pushed to work with um, then a very, not even up and coming by that point, but a very in-demand producer in in Godric, who'd worked, uh, produced Radiohead, and will continue to produce Produced radio right after that. He worked with Beck, who becomes another Paul collaborator some years later. Hmm. Godric also, as we know, challenged Paul. I challenged his writing. He challenged his recording method. Put him on edge, if you will. Right? Um, brought him to attention. I suppose, as you, as you say, this is um, maybe it's a, a full three hundred and sixty. Maybe it's a pivoting away from from comfort that he might have enjoyed. But the effects are there, right? It's um, Chaos and Creation became a massive success, um, and then he quickly followed that up with Memory Almost Full, which again, another album that production started before Chaos. It 
finished after chaos and these are albums that are you know i think they're maybe 18 or 20 months apart i could be off on the on the timeline there but relatively quick mm. compared to driving rain was late 2001 so that's about four years before chaos and then climbing pie was another four years before that which of course linda's death is in the middle of that we do have the run devil run album which i think is also a crucial aspect of his career but with chaos and i i remember when that came out thinking the promotion the the marketing for this is like this is notable this is big and then it's i think grown from there so absolutely i think that this is something that as you say started on on a on a on a final road but also put him back on top as he's retained Mm. that position so consistently since Mm. we should end that conversation talking about mccartney 3 which as we speak is the most recent release from paul and it's completely uncharted territory to have a a 77 78 year old rock star releasing contemporary records like this what can we tell about where paul is in this part of his life from the contents of mccartney 3 i think despite all, particularly all the things that we just highlighted from the late 90s into the early 21st century, I get a real sense of happiness, of joy, of pleased where he is. And that's not to say that he doesn't uh, miss Linda, doesn't miss George or George Martin or John. But, and this is, I think, true when you look not only at the excitement that he embodied for McCartney three, but thinking about the celebration that has come with his his books, from the lyrics to Eyes of the Storm to the real celebration of the Get Back documentary, right, and seeing him at the premiere with his family. Maybe that's where we find him. And I know in a lot of the the chatter, if you will, if you were, were going on deep dives and say Twitter, what used to be Twitter, um, if you went into fan forums on McCartney's website, on other websites, you know, there was a lot of real concern that uh, the got back to her as it existed in 2022, that that might've been it mm-hmm. that without saying it, that that was the last tour he had quietly retired. We know that's not the case. <laughs> we, we can happily state that I think he's on top. And I, I really get a sense that he's happy to live in the excitement that still surrounds him. You know, even with everything that's gone on globally, you know, the making, the recording of McCartney 3 occurred because he was in rock down. But again, it's it's back to those themes that we started with, right? Of home, family, love. I never quite got the story correct whether he was living with Mary and her family or just very near in 2020. But nonetheless, they could, they spent a lot of time together. It was near to his studio in Sussex. And so... Again, there's a, a sense of that consistency of those very themes continue to provide for him what they did a half century ago. And that's, I think, it's beautiful as we have experienced it, listening to it, that we can we can still see that persistence. It's an excellent and touching way to end, Richard. It's been, um, it's been really uh, interesting talking to you. So thank you for coming on to talk about That Was Me. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a blast.